And welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob go boldly through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? I am ready to begin recording the podcast. That was maybe doing a robot oh. voice. I don't think it conveyed. I think it. If it's not obvious to the audience yet, I come up with these jokes literally on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you have a logical explanation for it, which is definitely what we need this week, as this week we are going to be covering what are little girls made of, which I'm afraid means you're going to have to put up with my Scottish pronunciation of the word girls for the next hour or so. But anyway, that's what we are going to be talking about. And this week we are, as always, joined by a guest. Say hello, Chris. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Excellent. Very happy to hear it. Um, <laughs> yeah, now we have um... to... Go on. I think we're about to call it the same thing. I think if you haven't guessed from the episode title and his name in it that Chris and I are have a familial relation. We're brothers. Indeed. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, as as we were pointing out pre-record, uh, not quite as horny as last week's episode, but still a lot of uh, sexual chemistry in this episode. It's going to be very fun to talk about with someone I'm related to. I I need to do more research before assigning guests to episodes, clearly. Oh, I think that just adds to the fun of it, doesn't it? <laughs> Please note for future reference, my brother will not be appearing on this podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so let's uh, let's crack on. Uh, normally, we turn to our guests and ask what their history for uh, or ask what their history with Star Trek is, rather. So, um, yeah, Chris, uh, how did you come to Star Trek? What's your history with the show? Um, well, I started watching it in. Uh, right after senior year of high school, because one of my friends is a longtime Star Trek fan, and we were into watching like old cartoons because we found them very amusing with their snippet animation. So we watched all of the animated series a lot, which we all really enjoyed, and then occasionally an episode or two of the original series. And we've also seen, I think, movies two through five. So I'm familiar with Star Trek, but not really in-depth the original series. Okay, that's cool. I mean, that means you're coming to it nice and fresh. And it's kind of, it's. I mean, I've been watching this show for far, 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 far too long. Um, so it's always nice to get people who are coming to it fresh and actually don't come loaded with all kind of like fan expectations and preconceptions and all the rest of it. So uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, thank yeah. you. Um, and uh, well, uh, Kev, would you like to explain this week's horny episode to us? <laughs> Uh, yeah, this week's um, horny episode, but thankfully, again, not as much as Mud's Woman. But still, we have Captain Kirk and Nurse Chapel beaming down to an icy planet where Nurse Chapel's fiancé, uh, and oh, we want to get into the Strange New Worlds connections at some point here, but her fiancé is uh, where his last scene. They find him, Dr. Roger Corby, along with his assistants, Do Andrea and Dr. Brown, and as well as this very tall, mysterious guy called Rook, who kills two red shirts very early on. They discover that Andrea, Ruck, and Brown are all androids. Ruck is an old android, and Corby used Ruck's technology to create Andrea and Brown from his com previously human companions. He also creates an android version of Kirk, who he wants to use to send up to the Enterprise to sort of take command and have Kirk help him figure out a planet for him to create an entire android society. Uh, naturally this 
upsets William Shatner because he has to do big 60s sci-fi ideals of what does that mean about human emotion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this all sort of culminates in Shatner turning Ruck and Andrea against Corby, and he winds up killing both of them. And then himself, because he's horrified by the realization that uh, he realized that he, he knows he's an android, but he finally sort of comes to terms with it, that he's a duplicate of the original and just can't sort of bear it anymore. So with everything sort of neatly tied up, he and Chapel are taken back to the Enterprise via Spock. And that concludes our story. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's it's a, a curious episode, given that we have yet more doubling after having basically just already covered that and lots and <laughs> lots of plot points, which we've we've kind of already seen before. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. But um, Chris, let's start with you. Um, how, how did you find this episode? Um, well, I, I enjoyed this episode quite a bit. Um, I thought that the themes were interesting. I liked the, well, there was a lot of classic Star Trek action in it. I liked when it <laughs> further established Kirk's prowess in martial arts, but he is no match to a very large man. <laughs> he got thrown around quite a lot. Um, yeah, I thought it was uh, very enjoyable to watch. And, well, as I know, I was watching this. My girlfriend did wake up, and she listened to some of the acting at the end. And she was like, did people actually think that there was good acting in this? I was like, I don't know, but people really liked the stories. And I thought this was a very <laughs> good story. I think it, I mean, which performance specifically are you reacting to? Because this is a discussion that comes up a lot on the podcast where, like, there's definitely theatrical forms of acting on the show that have fallen out of favor but i think there's a lot of performances that we've found very strong let's see i think she was referring to i think dr corvey was giving a speech at okay. the end yeah i i mean i yeah, was he is kind of wild this episode <laughs> yeah i know the actor's name is michael strong but that's not what i mean when i say strong performances i only think as, a, as one of our guest stars i really like what shatner and Mangel baird are doing this episode but i did not find the guest cast all that compelling unfortunately well what i mean what about the guest cast outfits i mean oh, if, they, if they don't if they don't draw the eye nothing oh. will oh and you know what okay. i mean uh, Sorry, those outfits are wonderful. I just want to quickly say, actually, exception for Ted Cassidy, who we will get into more later, but that was he was given a great performance of the big old lunkhead. But yes, the outfits, um, wonderful little X designs there. <laughs> yes, uh, very, very much um, showing off uh, Sherry Jackson's um, uh, abilities. I think it's yes. probably fair to say. How can I delicately step around this? Just um, yeah. So. It's 1960s, so Gene Roddenberry. The men have these like great black undershirts that look good, and she's just like ditching the undershirt, bearing skin all over. Very uh, like, of course, that's how it's going to be. Of course. It was also weird to me how her outfit wasn't even like fully tight. Like the back was just loose suspenders. Like it doesn't <laughs> even make any sense. They said this flight is supposed to be a negative 100 Fahrenheit, and they're all wearing one layer of clothing. And Andrea's not even wearing that. <laughs> it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty efficient clothing. Yeah. But yeah, it's... Yeah, I guess the cave is supposed to be warmer, but yeah, they... It is very fun. Like, this is... We encountered it in a previous episode where, like, the temperature is dropping on the planet and, like, Sulu should not have survived or whatever. It's like... I think they don't understand how temperature works in this show. 
I think numbers just exist in a parallel dimension. It's it's right. not something colder or we're going something faster, but there's something that they're referring to. It doesn't actually seem to have any connection with the real world. It's just one of those things which is, you know, it's a big number. Ooh, scary. And I think that's pretty much what the temperature thing is because I I think the cast would very much be uh, with struggling with exposure, whether, whether androids or not. Right. But yeah, uh, I do want to circle back to what I said about the one guest star I would like, Ted Cassidy, who I was delighted to learn uh, played Lurch in the Addams Family. And then you can immediately see it once you have that connection. Uh, yeah, I think he does a great job. It's just like, I mean, simple role. He's the big guy Kirk has to wrestle. But I don't know, just like the little far off look he gives when being dubbed by the other actors, imitating voices. And then just his original voice is just so deep and like compelling i guess i don't know if anything is qualified as performance but he definitely has presence where the other guest cast is like sorely missing that yeah he definitely occupies the screen uh, even although he appears to be have been given a sort of a dead skinned muppet to wear he's absolutely yeah. he's absolutely kind of um you know making his presence felt and i think it's kind of interesting the way that they kind of play kirk against him because for a lot mm-hmm. of it um, you know, there's a lot of the physical stuff. So Shatner gets, or somebody who looks faintly like Shatner, gets thrown around the set a bit uh, in order to prove, you know, how how strong he is and how inadequate us mere humans are next to this this sort of towering android presence. And Kirk tries to kind of play him sort of towards the end and and you know get through to him in terms of oh well you know you destroyed your builders so you know you can you can you know rebel back against corby or whatever and kirk really miscalculates and and um and ruck is just destroyed you know uh, uh, corby you know phasers him and, and that's the end of that and i think it's I, I think it's kind of an interesting approach i think the show swallows the moment slightly um because we don't really get any real sense of like regret or loss once ruck is actually sort of um vaporized but he's very much a, a character who you start to feel like a proper degree of sympathy with and kirk badly miscalculates yeah. and, and gets him destroyed so it's it's uh it's an interesting way to play that that kind of thing it is leaning quite heavily into the kind of silent strongman stereotype but even so i think yeah. the show kind of gets away with it yeah i think like you said it is a stereotype but i don't know it's all stereotypes are become stereotypes because they work well on some level. I think just, again, it's the presence there that really works for me. And I think you're right. I find his exit from the episode, so to speak, very abrupt. It's <laughs> a little unfortunate because they are getting some great material with him where it's like, I mean, the, the classic arguing with a computer thing and like, what is your real logical objective here? What really makes sense for what you're programmed to do? And then as soon as Kirk sort of makes that breakthrough, he's zapped and out of there because the episode has under 10 minutes left, maybe under five by that point. It just really wraps things up very quickly. Yeah, I think there's also a sense that um, when it comes to the, the the side characters, other than, well, I was going to be very ungenerous there and I'll be slightly kinder. Other, other, other than Corby, I don't think the episode cares much about the side cast. Um, no. And they really want us to invest in, in Corby. I'm not sure that Michael Strong is quite... <clears throat> 
strong enough in the role. Um, yeah. And it, it's uh, there's no we're just going to have to live with the fact that there's going to be a lot of really bad puns around his name. So sorry, everyone. That's just how it is. Um, yeah, it's not quite strong enough a performance. He looks disconcertingly like Walter Koenig does now, which is also mm. slightly off, slightly off putting. Um, but I don't know. Like I think the character is interesting, and I think the idea. Um, like you mentioned, Chris, like there's there's interesting themes there that that can kind of develop the episode. I feel like it needs another draft to pull them out a little bit more. Like the idea, like we get this idea that he was somehow critically injured. He gets that line, "Oh, my legs were gone," and all this kind of stuff. Right. So he put himself into this body. So like, there's a potentially very sympathetic kind of angle to play him, but the the the, the script does kind of go a bit black and white once we really know what's going on. And it's all a bit, I don't know, it, it all becomes a little bit too... Straightforward isn't quite the right word, but, you know, like, this is this is by the guy that wrote Psycho. Like, you, he, we should be able to get some kind of deeper psychological insight into, into these characters. And it feels maybe just a little bit too surface. Is that too strong? No, I think that's very fair. Um, I think... I, I did. I was reading a memory alpha, which seems well sourced. So I'm going to keep using it as a source. But um, yeah, Roddenberry was not happy with the original script and had to do a lot of rewrites as they were filming. I think one of the biggest ones that obviously I had to take was before they were filming was that Chapel was also supposed to be a guest star, and then he just rewrote it to be a more familiar character who happened to be played by his wife or lover at the time, but still. Pure, pure um, coincidence. Oh, of course, but. I think like uh, things about the weird pacing, things that could be chalked up to either an original script that was not up to par or then tinkering with it afterwards. I am not 100% sure, obviously, without having seen these original scripts. But yeah, I don't know. It's It definitely feels like a very rushed conclusion and kind of after a lot of interesting ideas and philosophizing, a very sort of shallow wrap-up to it all. I found another weird thing about just the character of Dr. Corby Mm-hmm. Say they keep like louding that he's like this amazing exobiologist and he's doing like great research, mm-hmm. and then the results of his research to extend human life is replace everyone with robots. <laughs> and it's like that doesn't seem very inspired. I don't really get what made this man so famous that like everybody in the galaxy or Starfleet at least knows who he is. Like Doctor Corby yeah. as an individual wasn't particularly impressive when he got there although i guess at that point he was already an android so yeah there's a lot of backstory that i think they like i do like the very first scene of exposition how they without outright saying it you get that this is a previous love of chapel you might not know the specifics of engaged but just through like i wish i could pull up the dialogue but it works very well in that um just like oh, this, and this person you have history with, that won't be a problem. And we all know who this is. And we're coming to, like, I think this show has generally proven itself to be very good with that opening scene exposition, where, yeah, some of it's covered by the opening Starfleet uh, Starlog monologue. But uh, I think there's a lot of great dialogue scenes early on to sort of establish relationships very quickly between uh, Chapel and this character we haven't met yet and the plight he's in. Then other details at Baxter are a lot more murky. Like, you're right, we don't really know what he did to earn Kirk's respect and Chapel's love in the past. And yeah, it's it's very sort of conflicting how they sort of let 
the empty space to do a lot of heavy lifting in those aspects. Yeah, which is a bit of a problem if that kind of relationship is going to be like the, the, the central one to the episode. But actually, the relationship between Chapel and, and Corby doesn't really amount to much, um, which mm. is a bit... It's a bit disappointing. I'm, I've am i got to be honest, I'm not a big fan of, of Christine Chappell in the original. No. I, and um, I think this episode kind of, like, it's, it's, she's not bad. And she's not, I mean, I think um, Majel Barrett does her best with what is, right. but it's, I mean, it, it's quite, it's, it's written as quite winsome and a bit kind of, you know, wet. And there's not a lot, she's not got a lot of performance options with the lines that she's given. I'm not sure she's doing much to lift the material, but I don't think the material itself is particularly inspiring. And I think, like you mentioned Strange New Worlds, Kev, um, I, I think you can tell why the character of uh, Christine Chapel gets retooled a bit. There's not a lot of overlap between uh, Strange New Worlds, Chapel, and, and what we get here. And I think that is understandable because I don't know that you could quite get away with this character now. I mean, you kind of could, but she's kind of a bit, oh, stand up for yourself, woman. <laughs> you know, she's, <laughs> she, she, and it, it, I think a lot of that is kind of, it's, it's very sort of period specific. I think that's the thing. It's, it's like, oh, well, you know, Kirk gets his big macho moment where he gets to snog a computer into submission. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's like the big, brave, muscular kind of, you know, but a hero kind of guy. That's what they were written of. And women were, you know, given more passive roles. And I think that's the problem with, with the way that um, Chapel is written in this episode. It, it's quite passive. She never kind of makes any effort to take charge of the situation or whatever. She kind of stands back and and sort of ex, you know either expects kirk to kind of come to her rescue or or that somehow corby is just going to turn out to be the man that she really thinks he is and and neither of those are particularly compelling as character traits and and it's one of the ways that i think i think there's a lot of stuff in this episode which comes across as as very modern particularly some of the philosophizing in the first half and and kind of uh, you know the the, the sort of attempts at character conflict but that's definitely one of the things which i think remains uh very much a product of its time this this slightly ineffectual writing for chapel yeah i think her like only real role in the episode is to be there to help convince the audience that the android kirk is like the real kirk that's like her real only point is talking to android kirk and being like tricked by that other than that she just observes yeah, it's, I mean, to go back to Strange New Worlds really quick, I just want to shout out the one thing I found very funny, which is, obviously, Star Trek cannot keep all its continuity in track. I don't want to expect it to, and I don't want this to come across as a criticism, because just do what the story, what the good story is. But uh, I just found it very funny when Chapel early on asked Spock, have you ever been engaged, Spock? It's like, that was a huge subplot in season one of the prequel <laughs> show. You know he has been. That was a huge bit of romantic tension. Anyways, um, but yes, I think Chapel has that same Yeoman Rand problem where it's just like these female characters, just, they don't know how to give them like assertiveness, like second wave feminism hasn't even kicked in yet. We don't know how to like, they're just the these, frankly, unfortunately, mostly male writers writing these characters don't know what to do with them other than to have them be kind of subservient to the Kirks and Corbys of their episodes. 
and it's sucks it's but that i think that explains why those two characters kind of well among other behind the scenes reasons fell by the wayside whereas a character like uhura who has a more active role got to keep along and remain more notable at the end of the day yeah although this isn't one of her strongest episodes either she is just on hailing frequencies duty uh, unfortunately but uh yeah, we'll have more to talk about in future episodes. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, well, for for sure. At least they were in this episode. I noticed in Mud's Women that pretty much every other named woman was absent from the entire episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, indeed. Oh, I mean, speaking of absences, there's one very conspicuous absence in this episode, yeah. which is McCoy. Um, yeah, no, no, uh, no DeForest Kelly. He was too expensive. <laughs> I mean, Sulu and so Scotty... absent that yeah. the intro has changed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his name was fully out of the intro i i think it might be consistent for season one though i've i don't yeah he's not he's not in the season one credits it's only season two where where he's uh where he's listed in 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 the first credits oh i thought there was uh an episode i saw that listed the three of them as the intro oh maybe later on i don't know but all the ones i've seen so far have been just shatner and nimoy regardless i mean he and sulu and scotty are all absent and it's i think it just speaks to i don't know you're just this feels more like, and especially with Chapel originally being an original character, it really feels like someone came in with a script that was not Star Trek and just like threw Kirk in there to be our leading man, but kind of did not realize the other characters that were in this show. I mean, Spock, of course, gets a scene where he very obviously figures out the android that's supposed to be a perfect duplicate is not a perfect duplicate at all. And I don't understand how this android scheme is supposed to work if he can't get Kirk's manners right. So of course, Kirk never sp- talks Spock like that. That's like a classic telltale of like being well, rude to his best friend like that. Is He yeah. thought it very loudly when it was copying his brain, and that's enough to get into the subconscious if you just think really loudly and say it out loud. Oh, that's what's, what that... That's right. What's really interesting about that whole subplot is it actually contributes nothing to the conclusion of the yes. episode. Which is such a weird thing to do. Like, they go through this big thing, like, exactly what you said, Chris. Like, like when Kirk is being duplicated, he has this kind of, uh, I'm sick of your half-read interference, and that gets transferred over to the uh, to the Android. Like, that's quite a clever piece of writing. Like, Kirk has figured out how he can, you know, tip off his first officer. He's figured out some way of, of, of beating the situation that he finds himself trapped in. Fantastic. And then... The android Kirk beams up to the Enterprise, encounters Mr. Spock, delivers the telltale line that gives away the fact that it's not the real Captain Kirk, and then nothing. And like the conclusion of the episode, Spock turns up too late. Like They've already resolved the situation by the time Spock kind of bursts through the door, phasers akimbo and ready to ready to go. Like Kirk's already solved the problem, like the, or, or at least... Um, Andrea has, has kind of solved the problem by conveniently uh, taking Kirby out of the equation. Uh, but, you know, this, it doesn't contribute anything. It's just runtime. That's such a weird beat for what is otherwise a well-written thing. But you would expect you would expect in a drama like this for, for that to be the thing. Oh, Spock's realized now he can beam down to the planet and, and sort of swoop in at the last minute and, and rescue Kirk and Chapel from the evil clutches of the, the bad androids. But, but no, it contributes nothing. Yeah, it's... I, w- I almost wonder, and this is pure speculation, if that is Roddenberry coming in and saying, you got to at least put Spock and Uhura in this episode. <laughs> you can't just have it be Kirk as 
generic leading man and then the all guest stars it's yeah but, but i would expect and, a script writer of roddenberry's experience like he's not the best writer in the world but i would expect somebody of his experience like he's had mountains of scripts commissioned by this stage he had his own tv series with the lieutenant and he's obviously been able to get this one off the ground it's not like he's an amateur writer he right. must have been able to see like his you know with his uncredited rewrites or whatever that this isn't contributing anything to the plot it because it doesn't it just it doesn't resolve anything it doesn't go anywhere it just sort of stops and i don't know it's it's like weird like I don't know, and obviously the same is true of uh, robert block as well you would expect a writer of his experience to be able to uh you know figure that out as well but he's maybe at least let off the hook because the episode as you said kev got rewritten again and again and again as as as, as it was being recorded so maybe maybe he's given at least a little bit of a benefit of the doubt but somebody should have picked that up yeah it I think it's just, it might be just a too many cooks in the kitchen problem. You just have two different ideas of how the episode should go coming up against each other. And then that just creates a lot of weird excess sort of things falling to the wayside and noise and things like that. And you just, it's the 60s. We're doing 29 episodes a year. You just got to, eventually you just got to put the pen down and shoot it. You can't do the Stranger Things thing where it's um, after months after the season ends, you finally open the whiteboard. All right, season five, due in three years. It's um, you just got to keep moving on these things. And I guess sometimes that means good writing falls by the wayside. That's, I, we've talked about the writing a lot, but I do really love the production design this episode. Uh, the Dayglow Cave is just beautiful. <laughs> I'd love to just walk through that. Mm. There's, there's, say, there's, there's a lot of caves in this show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, if let's, you're into caves, this is the show for you. <laughs> yeah. There's an amazing scene, which I'm, I'm not sure how to describe in a PG kind of way, but I'm going to do my best. When Kirk is being pursued by Ruck and he has to break off the stalagmite. Uh, right. It's a rather stalactite that he's going to beat him with. And there's a shot where it cuts back to him and he's so clearly. And then, sorry, there's no polite way of saying this. He's so clearly holding a dildo. It's just, yeah. it's, the, it's the, like, you, you, you want a hearty episode? Here's Kirk with a dildo. It's, there's no polite way of saying it, so I do apologize. But it's, um, yeah, it's everything about this kind of, this weird sort of purple lit kind of, you know, slightly huggy bear vibe to the cave. It, 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 I mean, it, it couldn't be more 1967 if it had a big date stamp you know hammered into the rock it's it's so of its era and yeah i do kind of love it it's it's really it's very much its own kind of aesthetic but it's it it really works for the episode yeah i definitely think that um i mean that image i think of kirk holding the very specifically shaped rock has gone viral (laughs) a little bit like in, in its own sort of like classic fan lore way it is just, but yeah, that I just love the environments of this episode so much. I just find them very compelling. The the cave living room was just so such a fun space to look around in during the uh, thing. I, I love the clone or robot clone creating centrifuge. It looks like a little merry-go-round at like a park. It's and the the whole dynamic of like the giant strap the naked Shatner is in. Like that is just such a fun image. Very James Bond. Um, mm. I don't know if it's any specific James Bond film. Just the classic: you strap him in and say, "I expect you to die," sort of thing. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's just that kind of very simple yet effective uh, design of these things. 
Uh, any thoughts from you, Chris, about like all of this uh, set dressing? Yeah, I, I really liked uh, this whole cave, which apparently also contains multiple bottomless pits. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess they needed to keep warm on this planet. But no, I like their whole outpost there. Like you said, the uh, android creating centrifuge was interesting it was strange to me that it seemed to require a person to make an android because then where's the the body double for brown or andrea or did it just happen that you can use two people so the whole the whole android creator (laughs) is it too established we just know it makes androids yeah which is fine enough on its own but no i thought everything looked uh looked good it was pretty uh immersive not too uh you know reality breaking to have all that stuff in there yeah i i mean i think it's just the confidence of this show it's just so good at selling itself like even if yeah from a 2022 eye you could see how it looks campy or silly but i think just the characters have enough conviction to the performances and like I said, it's, it's simple and effective. It gets the job done. I think it's worth um, drawing attention to the direction as well, because I think um, oh, James yeah. Goldstone does a really good job uh, with the directing. Mostly. I'm going to have a big caveat at the end of this, but I think mostly this is this is well directed. I like, um, like that whole thing about the caves and the, like the bottomless pit that the, the red shirts kind of plummet into. Um, like the way that he goes down and sort of shoots up out of it. Um, I mean, it's a really simple technique, but it does help to establish the fact that this is a a, a series of caves which exist on different levels or, or whatever. It's a very simple thing to do, but he bothered to take the time to do it, which not every director would necessarily have done. And there's that, frankly, jaw-dropping moment when uh, Corby is first revealed, and he kind of moves forward and sort of steps in front of this huge bright light like he's Madonna coming out of the sidelines or like David Bowie in the Heroes video or something, you know, and he's got this kind of backlit halo around him, like like he's just waiting for the go-go dancers to come on and then they'll do this week's number one. It's it's such a weird moment for a show like Star Trek to have, but it's incredibly kind of dramatic and striking. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I think presumably, uh, you know, there weren't, a lot of sets available for this episode but you know like James the Goldstone is doing his best to try and bring out the ones which are there the one exception to the good direction is that first phaser fight is terrible oh okay. um it's just so badly done. Like Phaser fights are always difficult because you have to do the whole thing pause lock off the beam gets drawn and blah 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 the whole practical way of doing that is is clumsy but it's so badly executed in this time right it's not that there's no tension it's not even clear from the scenes that are shot that these people are in the same room as each other it's really kind of weird and cack-handed because so much of the rest of the episode is well directed that one kind of stands out a bit in in the fact that it just doesn't at all come together uh, so that's the one big kind of caveat but but for the most part yeah i think i think the i think the direction does does really well with comparatively limited resources and the the doubling the two shatners in the same scene flawless 
I just, oh, yeah. I just think that's so incredible for 1967. It's amazing. Like, I think even it even one ups. I think the Enemy Within, which also had Shatner's interacting with each other, but um, just having them so next to each other and like perfect back and forth in this. Like, I mean, Enemy Within did a lot of like shot reverse shot, keeping them out of the same shot outside of a couple key ones. This has them interacting with each other very casually in ways that really, like I said, blue, like you said, blue minds for this era it's really incredible um james goldstone also directed the pilot where no man has gone before and i think that was also a great looking episode so that's probably why they brought him back and yeah i mean i also agree that phaser fight is ridiculous that's that's like very early on when like and like corby says andrea go get him and instead she is like completely effectiveless and it's kirk like <laughs> holds her hostage and gets behind the table yeah that that whole loosely we could describe it as action sequence just doesn't just doesn't work uh, much more of a fan of like kirk and um oh kirk oh god why am i blanking on his name ruck i was reversing his name um right kirk and ruck stalking each other in that cave with the unusually shaped rock and all but still much more effective of like this is where each character is and it's perfectly staged you know the geography of the land you have the great trick of him pretending to be chapel and kirk figuring it out and then luring him by falling for the ruse supposedly it's yeah i think all of that is just so well effectively like shot yeah and it has it has a proper amount of tension about it as well which is fairly impressive all things considered it's it's a well put together sequence that really makes use of yeah again like it's a fairly limited space and and just even even the the little reveal, like when eventually uh, Ruck lifts Kirk out of the bottomless pit rather than, you know, just letting him fall away. I mean, on, on one hand, you can kind of tell Shatner's on wires for it and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's just, it, it's just, you kind of get caught up in it. You don't really think about it when you're watching it. And that's, that's another kind of sign of a good director. It's like, yeah, if you stop and think, you think, yeah, well, yeah, he's probably on Kirby wires or he's probably, you know, whatever. Um, and that's all right. But but in the moment, you just think, oh, wow, like this really strong android has lifted him up. And it, it works surprisingly well. Yeah, so another thing I was making notes of use by, because it's more just, you know, classic uh, campiness, but they only had the budget to show the wire sticking out of brown for the one shot. So they upgraded to the instant destruction phaser. And so that really simplified, like you were saying, cut out more of those dramatic fights just for a one hit type of thing. Right. Yeah, that is a great point where it is like, I love the design of the wires like inside the robots. Like you see it when Brown's chest is shot open. You see it when Corby sort of loses a bit of his hand and that's so well designed. But yeah, you can't, you're right. It must be a budget thing where then, um, Ruck and Andrea and Corby are all just like instantly annihilated. So you don't see like robot wreckage that they didn't have to design and build in the corner there. It could have been either just they didn't want to show any more wires or because they were having um, scheduling issues at one bit over uh, schedule. So maybe Mm. they just needed to accelerate things a bit and wrap it up. But it did kind of uh, those last few not really even death, just deletions, did feel very rushed, like you were saying earlier, JG, about how 
Ruck just kind of unceremoniously gets removed from the ending and how Corby just removes the two of them at the end. It just seems kind of very sudden. Like, it's a little too clean, really. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree. And I think one of the one of the problems of this episode, I, I know this was done as a remount um, as, at the ending. That scene where uh, Andrea like pulls the trigger and vaporizes both her and Corby was not meant to be how the episode originally ended. It was meant to be that it kind of went off by accident and then they were both killed. Now, that's pathetic. I'm yeah. very glad that I'm very that's glad significantly that's, worse. <laughs> I'm very glad that's not the ending that we got. But I think I think maybe it's because it was a remount after the episode had finished shooting, or maybe because it was rushed or whatever. I don't know. But that moment where it's clear that she pulls the trigger and vaporizes them both, that needs more emphasis. It needs to be made clearer and it's not really obvious i think watching it if you don't know that in advance actually maybe maybe chris you can you can uh well maybe you can both tell me because you haven't seen this episode before but i don't think it's that clear that it's it's her making a conscious choice to end both of their lives and in in a sense she's become self-actualized or emergent or i don't know what i don't know exactly what the right word to describe it is but she clearly is meant to be making an informed decision and the decision she has made is to destroy them both. That's fine, but like like a one and a half second shot or whatever of it is, it's it's too quick and we don't get any kind of like we don't even get like a regretful glance from Kirk or uh oh so she you know she not saw the error of her ways or she you know made a conscious choice to help free us or blah 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 whatever. Like there's no there's no comeback or follow-up to it, and it's just, it's a weird beat. Yeah, I mean, it's so weird that, as evidenced by my summary early on, I wasn't, I thought it was Corby pulling the trigger, and <laughs> I, th- I couldn't tell, I guess, which one of them was killing both of them. There is, I, very odd. I think reading the Memory Alpha and Wikipedia summary says it's Corby pulling the trigger, but that it is okay. that unclear... No, but yeah, that is unclear. Is speaking to the failing of the episode. It's just so okay. ambiguous. Which one is the one who's ha- who's tired of it all and ending it both, ending it for both of them? Okay, it's... I've just I've just pulled up the scene again. Okay, and it it almost could potentially be all three of these things. So they're kissing. She is holding the phaser with her finger on the trigger. He goes to grab her hand. So it's unclear whether him just holding her hand pulls the trigger, he's pulling the trigger through her hand, or him grabbing her hand makes her then pull the trigger. But then, five seconds later, Spock walks in and they don't talk about it. So it is a very weird ending to the whole resolution, really. Yeah. And hearing that it was originally just accidentally going off, I think, just says volumes about just all these rewritings and reshootings and just trying to make it work from an unclear direction, I think is just the ultimate end of day like thing here. Yeah. It's, there's so much I find fascinating about this episode. I really love how it digs into like Android logic and free will and this, like it's such like a very, like I said, 60s sci-fi idea of 
well, if you're a robot, that's so much better than being a human. Ah, but humans, they feel emotion. I mean, it's it's so campy when I put it like that. But I don't know. I, I find them these ideas fascinating to think about. <laughs> I, it's kind of like uh, the weird MCU movie I go for bat, to bat for. The Eternals asking those same questions. When you raise these questions of free will and human nature in science fiction, I always just sort of instantly am sort of endeared towards it. But I mean, yeah, it's so muddled here. I think one of the things about the way that this episode handles it, though, and not just not just that aspect, but kind of like the the broader aspect of the, I mean, world building is probably too strong, but but the the the, the, the construction of this galaxy that the, the ships out and exploring, there's there's very little humor in this episode. It's quite a sort of dark episode in a way, like you said, like describing it makes it sound a bit camp, and there are definitely a few camp moments in it. A few of which do come from Mr. Shatner. Um, but as a broader kind of reach, like the idea that there are these civilizations who have risen and fallen before, you know, humanity mm. has ever reached out to the stars and the fact that there are things that we don't understand and threats which aren't we aren't necessarily prepared for does paint kind of an interesting picture. And this isn't like the first time in Star Trek that we've come across this. We had it with the salt vampire. We had it with the strange energy barrier where no man has gone before. You know, it, it, it feels like it's very much a functional part of this universe which is being built. And I think that's a good thing. I like the fact that uh, the universe isn't just made up of, I know we haven't encountered either of them yet, but Klingons or Romulans or whatever. It's, it's not just, you know, like, uh, here's Russia, but they're wearing funny makeup or whatever. There's there's something scary about going out into the universe. And, and you know, the two security guards who are killed, small sidebar, the very first red shirts, um, yeah. technically, because they were actually wearing red shirts this time. Um, but, you know, like particularly the first one, like the death is so offhanded. But that's what happens when you step out into the world. Again, I think Shatner responds to that really well. He gets a nice performance after he's lost his first man and then he's concerned about the second one. And he really puts emphasis on that, I think, very, very successfully. But that's the thing. It isn't safe. The universe isn't this cuddly place where you can just step out into. People die and they die for stupid reasons or they die for things that you don't understand. It's ambiguous whether um, Corby, when he says, oh, it was very much against my wishes. But it's not really clear whether that's true or not. And I, I kind of quite like that ambiguity being left there. But yeah, the universe is a big, strange, weird, odd, curious place. There's a lot of uh, H.P. Lovecraft in this episode, specifically the Mountains of Madness. I'd be very remiss if I didn't point that out. But um, the old ones and technology left behind and all that. I mean, it's just it's it's just straightforward Lovecraft, all of that stuff. But I think it works well in the context of Star Trek because, yeah, the universe shouldn't be a safe place. It shouldn't be somewhere that we just bump into, you know. I mean, we are still pretty early on in the run but we're still a long way away from you know all oh, the aliens look like us but they've got bumpy heads it's it's like even even casting um ruck as as somebody who is you know massively bigger than anybody else in the cast giving giving that role to ted cassidy like you didn't have to do that to emphasize the difference but they did and i really like that effort going into constructing this universe which just isn't this safe space yeah, it's it's such a great idea. I mean, it's very Lovecraftian. Um, 
I mean, this might come up a lot in future episodes, how I'm reading through Lord of the Rings for the first time. And that's such a Tolkien-ish idea, too, of like these things mm. exist well beyond the scope of the initial story we're telling. There's so much history here that we're just not going to dig into, um, in Tolkien's case, unless you read The Silmarillion. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just such an idea I find fascinating is the idea of like history that goes unspoken and is forgotten. Like Ruck not knowing how long ago he was built is just such a good idea. Oh, that's another thing in my notes that I really liked about the episode and Star Trek, the series as a whole, is their um, previously established history. Like when Kirk was Mm -hmm. just listing out like names of dictators, he throws in just two completely fictional ones. (laughs) <laughs> like he goes on like Gagas Khan and he says Hitler and he says Ferris or Maltuvius. And it's like, who is Maltuvius? He's just another dictator who was famous by the time this episode was from the twenty second century or whatever. So I thought that was really neat, just how how they care about mm-hmm. making sure that people know that the show is set in the future and not just ignoring, you know, whatever fictional years happened between nineteen sixty six and the twenty third century. Oh, yeah. It's it's a trope I love so much and it always works so much better than trying to pick a contemporary 21st century person to be a great thinker or evil person in the future. Um, I think we all cringe when we remember discovery in an early season <laughs> saying, and of the great 21st century thinker, Elon Musk, which has aged as well as milk. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love putting the fake names in there instead. Yeah. And we're going to get more of that once we roll around to Khan, but that's going to be a whole separate oh, yeah. conversation <laughs> to look forward to. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just all that stuff is 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 gravy, and and to see all these building blocks being put into place so early on is is just wonderful. It's it's um, it's not my favorite episode of Star Trek ever, but I think that like there's real like proper effort being made to try and uh, put something together that isn't just run-of-the-mill and i think that's the, the, the thing that's so easy to forget about star trek these days is that because so much of it is you know part of our culture part of our pop culture heritage hegemony whatever you want to describe it as it's kind of fascinating to go back and watch the pieces being put into place uh first time round, and yeah just just little efforts like 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 you said chris just throw away a little line oh but it implies so much more for not having been explained than uh oh this dictator who as you will remember had this massacre on some planet we've never heard of no it's just a name and a list and the conversation goes on that makes it feel so much more kind of like naturalistic and and of a part of the universe rather than something that sort of stands out from it yeah i think we are i think wrapping up and winding down uh jg did you have any more final thoughts um i mean i think we're i think we're I think we've done good this episode, and uh, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know, this isn't like an all-time classic uh, story, and I, I, I think you feel the absence of the, the characters who aren't there, There's, you know, not having Scotty, not having Sulu, not having McCoy particularly, um, and I think particularly McCoy's kind of empathy and, and sort of belief in humanity would have proven to be a very interesting kind of um contrast both to the sort of philosophizing which is going on and the little bits that we get with Spock uh, on the Enterprise as well. I think that little extra dimension would probably have lent a lot to the episode. Um, so it, I can't help but 
feel that absence, but that's also not fair. If you were watching this series contemporaneously in the 60s, like, McCoy's only been in three or four episodes, and we're up to, like, five or six, so you wouldn't necessarily, you know, watching these things in sequence, feel his absence maybe much more than you would, say, Scotty, or even, or even Yeoman Rand. And so maybe that's an unfair sort of burden of history to put in the episode but even so I, I can't help but feel that absence but even even sort of putting that to one side I mean this is a really solid slab of sci-fi and if it's not the best show or the best episode that we've ever had I think it still contributes more than enough to kind of the ongoing initial construction of the series that it, it sort of justifies its place you said it better than I could so I think let's move on to our a new segment where we're lifting, um, we're basically lifting a way to conclude these episodes from your Beatles podcast, and we're going to basically have a quick little out of ten or however we feel like rating of the episode, just to sort of focus the conversation a little bit uh, at the end. There, um, I would go seven out of ten. I think I had a lot of fun watching this. I don't think it's going to stick in the mind the same way. I don't know, The Naked Time or Where No Man Has Gone Before, which are probably my two favorite ones so far. Like, I don't think it's going to hit those quite heights. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably fair. Um, Chris, what would you give this one? Um, I think I'd say an 8 out of 10. I found this one to be a very good watch. Um, it did, you know, keep my attention. I really enjoyed seeing it. Like we were saying, all the uh, direction and production design was very good to look at. Um, and the story was good too. So yeah, eight out of ten is a very watchable episode. Yeah, Fantastic. Think, yeah, very watchable. I think very much sums it up, and that's a lot of Star Trek. At least that, that's the good thing is all eight, seven episodes we've covered so far, very watchable. At least we haven't hit. I know there's low points of the series to come, but so far I've been more or less very entertained. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we shouldn't underestimate uh, the value of watchability in a show which is half a century old. You know, that's that's (laughs) the other thing. Like, there's so many terrible, terrible 1960s TV shows which are, I mean, not unwatchable, but the contrast, let's say, between this and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Time Tunnel or any of those kind of you know, are lost in space, you know, all those kind of hokey old 60s shows. Like, you know, you can appreciate some of those shows for their uh, cultural value or for being representative of the time, but very rarely do they tip over into actual, like, oh, I want to watch a lot more of this. Um, that's that's one of the things that Star Trek is really really good at, and and what our little girls are made of is not a great classic of the era. It's but it's it's watchable. You watch it and you think, oh, I really enjoyed that. I, I you know, think I might want to watch some more. And that's not something to be underestimated because it's absolutely not a given for for a piece of media which is let's say is 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 over half a century old. I. Like, one of you's given seven, one of you's given eight, and I'm so tempted to split the difference and say seven and a half. Um, but I think I'm going to go with seven. I think, I yeah, I think this is like a solid slab of uh, Star Trek. I think there's a few things it could have done better. Um, but it's, yeah, in, in the end, it's just, it's just very watchable television. All right. And uh, now we move on to recommendations, where we have 
thoughts about non-Star Trek related media that we want to recommend to our audience. Uh, Chris, why don't you start us with something you'd like to shout out? Let's see. Well, I listened to your first couple of episodes and you did recommend Star Trek media. So I will follow that trend and get a little ahead okay. of the curve and tell people, <laughs> I implore you not to skip past the animated series. It's a lot of fun. And if you're following this podcast, you should not disregard the animated series just for being animated because it has the entire cast and a lot of crazy, crazy stories, which are mostly ones that they could not budget for this live action TV show. So they shut it at the animation and they are great. Yeah. Um, if the, if you're thinking the question now, well, will they talk about it? I think that's a question for 2024 for this podcast. <laughs> Let's wait till we get to live action stuff first. But yeah, I definitely am interested in watching the animated stuff someday whether it be under the guise of recording conversations about it or just on my own um i want to shout out a similarly campy science fiction show that in this case intentionally looks like it was shot in someone's basement and it is because it literally is does have that feel (laughs) i think it literally was the beginning um so you're everyone listening to this podcast is probably aware of mystery science theater 3000 the show where uh, a human host and two puppeted robots uh, comment on cheesy old movies and then do little sketches in between segments of the movies. It's uh, it's been running for over 30 years, off and on. It had, I think, like 10 or 11 runs via a local network and then the Comedy Channel, pre-Comedy Central, and then the Sci-Fi Channel, pre-SIFI. Um, <laughs> And then just coming off the air, coming back for Netflix, Netflix being Netflix, taking it off the air again. It is finally back in a now fully self-funded form, and I've been watching it. I've been inviting friends over to watch it with me. It's incredible. It's it's as good as the classic run of the show. Um, I believe it's under a website called the Gizmoplex. But you can also just download the, the app on Roku's and iPhones and whatever you use to watch streaming services. I believe it's just called Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's not a cheap service, but if you get the subscription, you get access to almost the entire back catalog. It's 12 seasons across three decades of material. And then you also get the new episodes, which I just, I highly recommend. I've seen seven by the time we're recording this. I know a few more will come out by the time it's out. They've at worst have been entertaining at best, have been some of the best episodes they've ever done. And to find the ingenuity this far into the run, I just think is incredible. Um, The newest, these new self-funded seasons, it's mostly the Netflix host, Jonah, but they have two other hosts in the mix. Um, There's a new host, Emily, who I believe joined them on live shows. Her episodes have not missed yet. I've loved her episodes so far. She is so funny. And um, I I think it's like a scheduling reason they have these multiple hosts. And she also has different voices for Crow and uh, Tom, the two robots, with her during her bits. And those other new actors are very funny, as are the returning Crow and Tom voices for Jonah's episodes. And the third host is uh, Joel is back for, I believe, two of the 13 episodes they've produced for this year. I've seen one of them, and he's as uh, his very, let's call it, laconic delivery is back in full force. It's very nostalgic for those who be nostalgic for that sort of thing. And he's still like he's still fresh, having a good time. I believe Joel is also the, as best you could call it, showrunner and producer of this stuff. And like he's such affection legacy for this thing he helped create. Uh, 
I love that Felicia Day and Patton Oswalt are back as sort of the evil like wraparound segment hosts, clearly working for scale and shooting on a green screen over the course of a week and just not letting that impact their performances at all. There's a lot of love for the show involved here. There's the joke writing is spectacular. The movies they've picked have almost always been great subjects. And even when they've been like, Oh, why'd you pick this movie? The jokes have still worked really well. It's yeah. I mean, Mr. Science of 3000, obviously historically a show with an, like a not consistent hit rate. So the fact that I think this new batch of episodes has hit so as hard as it has is just a testament to they're in such a good place right now. And the fact that it is fully self-funded, you're not giving money to the Disney corporation or the Warner brothers discovery corporation or something like that. Some job or some tech giant that's looming in the background. I don't know. It just feels good to know that the money goes directly to the people who help make it. And is just a totally independent thing. It, it gives a little punk rock attitude <laughs> back to the original basics of, like I said, shooting in a garage or of that, at least that feel. So yeah, Mr. Science Theater 3000, it's back and better than ever. I highly recommend you check it out. Oh, that's so brilliant. Uh, that just, I, I, I feel it necessary to point out that uh, Crotty Robot is my online avatar. Uh, of course. I'm a massive, huge fan of uh, Mystery Science Theater mystery science theater 3000 and i'm i'm say i'm i'm going on holiday in uh, a week's time and i'm saving these episodes up so that i can open a bottle of wine sit down and just just indulge myself you know that's all i want to do and it's so wonderful to hear that uh, the new version is 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 so great yeah and and of course i mean the classic on the show keeps circulating the tapes the origin of television piracy <laughs> i mean if, if... <laughs> They have not made it hard to find these new episodes if you don't want to drop the, I don't know, like a hundred bucks for the subscription or whatever. A hundred bucks a year, but still. It's I think it is a little of a steep price, but they've they're they're not they're turning a blind eye to those who are more financially strapped, if you so inclined. So I just recommend you check it out. It's so it's such a great show and I just love what they're doing right now with it. Uh, it, it genuinely uh, makes me so happy to hear that. Um, I've watched Cinematic Titanic, which was fine, and I like Rift Tracks. I greatly enjoy it, um, but nothing can quite compare to the original. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, um, and even like the Netflix series, uh, which weren't necessarily the best that MST3K yeah. has ever been. Like, um, I still, I just laughed it up, of course, and I, that one, that will never not be the case. And this, this stepped up the Netflix series. It feels like almost in line with the original stuff, but with like. All the modern references and jokes like land so hard as well. It's, I, it's just hard to describe. Other than wow, they got the magic back. It's and you can't believe they did. Ah, that's fantastic. I'm very very happy to hear that. Um, good. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to recommend this week uh, Reservation Dogs, um, which is a a, a comedy. Um, I guess although it's not. I guess I don't want to use dramedy, but it's a drama with comedy or a comedy with drama or I don't know exactly what term you want to uh, append to it, uh, but it's great. Uh, it's on FX and it's such a, I don't know, it's such a heartfelt show without ever being a part of the thing that you would normally associate with heartfelt. It's wonderful to see representation on screen course it is it's wonderful to have uh indigenous people involved in the writing and the production and the casting and the starring and everything else of course it is it's brilliant that it seems to be getting some real sort of critical appraisal and and appreciation behind it 
absolutely no question about that um but it's also one of those shows that no matter how much you kind of read about it or no matter how many uh reviews you read or or sort of you know think pieces or whatever never quite manages to prepare you for sitting down and watching the episodes themselves and they are delightful they are incredibly charming and and honest and sometimes very brutally honest um and it's an absolute knockout i wasn't expecting to be as bowled over by it as i was and it's again especially when you hear about kind of like all oh, representation and putting minorities on screen you know it can it can trip off a lot of kind of like well you know of course a lot of people are going to approve of this whether it's any good or not because of the representation rather than because of the actual material and it's a joy to be able to come to a show like reservation dogs and actually find out you know the material Every single bit as good as uh, the reputation the show has. It's deeply funny, often a very dry humour. It's it's uh, very, uh, what's the word? It's it, it's a very, yeah, very dry humour, very very understated, uh, but all the more funny for it. The core cast are just brilliant. Just uh, just out of this world. But uh, Devery Jacobs uh, as Alora outstanding she is so powerful on screen she just absolutely she's one of those people who you cannot take your eyes off even if she's just standing in the background next to a pillar you can't take your eyes off her she's just amazing the whole cast are like that everybody is brilliant um show has just launched its second season as of recording i think it's up to episode three now if i'm not mistaken um and it's just very compelling it portrays a world that we don't often see uh, on television and people who aren't often represented and that's brilliant but don't let that be the thing that drives you just the fact that it's incredibly funny it's just a wonderful piece of television and it's got everything that you could possibly ask from like a touch not uh top notch comedy so uh yeah reservation dogs that's my recommendation i understand it's a taika waititi uh, produced and created show i mean it i sure is <laughs> he's in the background of it. but yeah that's wonderful i have I mean, just I've been watching Our Flag Means Death, and I finally started What We Do in the Shadows, both both very funny shows. I know he has limited involvement with all of those, with all the other things he's doing, but he's made a good name of himself as a TV producer. He's shepherding some good projects. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of them. I don't know how... I, this is, I think, Reservation Dogs is much less high profile, certainly the, uh, much less yeah. high profile than What We Do in the Shadows. Um, and Our Flag Means Death is starting to get a bit of a build behind it now. But I think of those three shows, this is probably the one which is the most, I don't know, can anything be described as low key if it's involved with him? I don't know. I mean, he's <laughs> very much the spotlight at the moment. But if anything that he's involved with can be described as low key, then then I guess this is this is this is probably it uh but yeah it's 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 great when when you get through with uh what we, what we do in the shadows and uh our flag means death give this a go like if you're if you dig his sense of humor if you're into his way of uh producing uh comedy then then you're just gonna lap it up fantastic i think that wraps things up you can email us at talking to you at gmail.com find us on twitter at talk trek to you i'm on twitter at kev kozer k-e-v-k-o-e-s-e-r and I also am a frequent guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser. You can find more JJ's writings at www.jjmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And he ha- his podcast is Beatles Stuffology, which is going through the Beatles uh, track by track. 
he also has a Voyager reference book, which, what is the title again? I was trying to find it. Think Good Thoughts. Fantastic. Yes, and that will be in the show notes, and I'll start plugging that as well at the end of these episodes. Um, and yes, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and the podcast you're using to help other people find us. Uh, Chris, thanks again for joining us. We'll <laughs> talk again uh, very soon, probably. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It was uh, a good time being here. I love talking through the episode, listening to podcasts. Hopefully, I'll be back again. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I think we can probably wrap it up there for now. Next week, we will be moving forward, of course. And that means we are going to be covering Miri. Oh, good. Adolescence and Star Trek. Everyone's <laughs> favourite. So, let's see if these ones manage to kick us off in a fairly positive direction or if they're going to set the template for Adolescence and Star Trek going forward. But, until then, keep talking. Thank you.